All right, Ephesians 4. Ephesians 4. Anybody do their homework? (laughs) You're going to need it. (laughs) Uh, We had lots of requests for ice packs after first service, so... Ephesians 4. Remember, the whole theme of Ephesians is walking in the riches of his grace, God's grace. And Paul has spent the first three chapters explaining to us in great detail the wonderful riches we have in Christ. He closed chapter 3 with praise to the Father who is beyond good to us and he's deserving of our praise forever. We just sang to him because he's worthy. And we've been learning about just how good he's been to us. Well, now in chapter 4, Paul's going to begin applying what we've learned. He's told us we're blessed. We're seated in the heavens with Christ. We're part of God's family. We have an important part to play in his kingdom. And now Paul's going to say, live up to your awesome new position. Live like Jesus. And if we're going to live like Jesus, we need to think like Jesus. So chapter 4, this is where Paul begins in verses 1 through 3. He says, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you that you walk worthy of the vocation wherewith you are called, with all lowliness and meekness, with long-suffering, forbearing one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. So we start here with who is doing the pleading, and it's Paul, of course. He says, I, therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you. Therefore, again, remember, anytime you see that word, you want to find out what it's there for, what came before we see this transitional statement. He's saying, therefore, because of all the riches we have in Christ. And so, again, if you haven't gone over the first three chapters again, I would strongly urge you to do that this week. Some of you in a little bit might be thinking, I probably need to do it right now. But we need to remember that everything we're going to talk about from now on in Ephesians, it must be pondered in light of the great grace that God has shown to us, right? That's what the therefore is there for. Everything that we're going to talk about from now on in chapter 4, 5, and 6, it must be pondered in light of the great grace that God has shown to us, okay? So keep in mind everything we've learned so far over the last few months. Now, the order of the words at the beginning of this verse are different in the original language. Literally, it reads, I beseech you, therefore, even I, the prisoner of the Lord. So Paul starts off with this this verb, I beseech you, this action he's taking, I plead with you, I beg you, please. That's some serious language there. I don't very often have people come to me and, and beg me of anything. And Paul is here pleading with us, begging with us, saying, please do this. Even I, he says, the prisoner of the Lord. Pleading, begging is something that's a very humbling thing to do. And Paul's humility in pleading with them is joined by reminding them of the honorable position he has of being imprisoned for Jesus. Can you imagine if someone came to visit our church who is from a country where they've been beaten for their faith or imprisoned for their faith or they are at risk of dying regularly for their faith? We would pay attention, right? 
And then when they spoke, let's suppose they pleaded with us to love one another or to share our faith or to be obedient to God in some other area of Scripture. How do you tune that out when we're not facing what they're going through and they're doing it every day? How do you not give that pleading more weight? Well, that's what Paul's doing here. His beggarly pleading with the Ephesians is not a weak thing. It's a strong thing because he's a faithful man who has remained faithful under the most difficult of circumstances. And so his next words to us should grab our attention. We should be willing to respond correctly to what he has to say. Because this man who's been faithful in more difficult circumstances than we're experiencing is pleading with us to follow his example. And what is he pleading with us to do, with the Ephesian believers to do here? That you walk worthy of the vocation wherewith you are called. This word walk, we're going to see it a lot in our study of Ephesians 4, 5, and 6. It refers to our conduct, how we conduct ourselves, how we behave, how our way of life, how we approach life. He says, I'm pleading with you that your behavior, your conduct, your way of life would be worthy. Worthy means fitting or proper. It's a picture word. It conveys the idea of, of when you would go to the market and someone would put on one side of the scale the, whatever it is you were purchasing, and they would say, well, this, the weight in this, the way I've set it up, is this many shekels. And then you'd put the appropriate amount of shekels on there, and to prove that your shekels are sincere, they're genuine, it would balance out. It would be fitting or proper for you to, this is you know, what you're purchasing, and this is what you're purchasing with. These two things match. That's what this word worthy means here, something that's fitting or proper. It, it measures equally. In other words, he says, I'm pleading with you that your conduct, your behavior, your way of life matches the vocation wherewith you are called. A vocation is an old English word that refers to a state of being called to a particular task. The word called here is a very similar word to that. It just refers to the urgent invitation to that particular task. In other words, we learned about this in the first three chapters. We learned about how we were elected, you know, to, in chapter one, how we were chosen for a holy and blameless life, right? We were picked for that kind of a life. That's what he saved us to, not to live to ourselves, but to live a holy and blameless life. And we learned in chapter 3 that part of this holy and blameless life includes our job assignment in God's family, that God has invited us to have a place in his family and then to do something in his family. This is the idea that Paul has in mind. God chose you for something important. He chose you to be different than you, are, you were before you were in Christ. He chose you to fulfill the necessary and important role that he's given you in his family to live holy and blameless. And so he's saying, conduct yourself, behave, live a life that matches up with this amazing call. Kenneth Weiss said, the first three chapters of Ephesians, they contain doctrine. The last three, exhortation. This is the proper order. For only in doctrine can one see the sweet reasonableness of the exhortations. When we talk about some things that are going to be heavy over the next few months, we mentioned it briefly last week about husbands, 
die, right? Love your wives like Jesus loved the church. Wives, submit to your local yokel, your husband, the one that's been given to you, you picked. Submit to him. Parents, lead your kids right. Children, obey your parents. My parents are crazy. It didn't say if your parents aren't crazy. It said obey your parents, for this is right. We're going to read about putting off the old man, putting on the new man, about leaving behind anger and lying and all these things, about redeeming the time, of not even having things of darkness even mentioned in our lives. All of those heavy exhortations, it is only in the teaching that we can see the sweet reasonableness of those exhortations. And then he went on to say, and it's only in that teaching that we can obtain the necessary power and technique to obey them. In brief, he said, God says in chapters one through three, I've made you a saint. And in chapters four through six, he says, now live a saintly life. We sang that song about coming out of the grave. It's, I, I never tell them what song is to sing or ask them what they're singing, but it's a great song. I ran out of that grave. Good. Take the grave clothes off, too. Take the grave clothes off, too. Don't live like you're dead anymore. Don't live like you're lost anymore. Live like someone who's born again. I've made you a saint. Now live a saintly life. That's what Paul is pleading with them here and pleading with us here to live a saintly life, to live a life that matches the lofty status God has given us by his grace. And this lofty life, this saintly life, it has clear standards about how church life is done, about how home life is done, about how work life is done, which we're going to cover over the next three chapters. But meeting those standards starts with having lofty attitudes, with having a saintly mindset, Jesus' mindset. And so in the next two verses, verses two and three, Paul describes Jesus' mindset in two ways, the mindset that we're supposed to have. Way number one, we find here in verse two, with all lowliness and meekness. Way number two is with long suffering, and then it explains what that looks like. So we're gonna start here with way number one, we're supposed to think like Jesus. It's with all lowliness and meekness. All here, it means every kind of, all possible kinds of. In other words, this is not about, you know, just kind of when you dip your toe in the pool and you go, whew, that's cold, uncomfortable. I'm just gonna, that's all I'm gonna do. It's not about just sitting on the side of the pool, you know, with your feet in. This is about diving in, going all the way. It's with all lowliness and all meekness. So what's lowliness? Lowliness means to have a deep sense of one's moral smallness, one's moral littleness. It means to have a humble opinion of yourself. Now, lowliness often gets confused with modesty. Modesty is not lowliness. Modesty is where you have a good opinion of yourself, but you don't act like it. That's modesty, right? We appreciate modesty. Like when someone walks into the room and we think, well, they're really good at that, but you would never know by the way they act, you appreciate that, right? There's some humility in that. It's an admirable attribute, all right? Nobody likes an arrogant person. 
Even if they, you, you know, everybody knows they're good at something, nobody likes hearing about it. Nobody likes someone acting like they're better than everyone else. So modesty has its merits in other ways. But this is not modesty. Lowliness is a mindset of spiritual poverty that recognizes my ever-present need for help. It does not have a high opinion of myself. It's when I have a deep sense of my moral smallness. And so I ask you this morning, do you have a high opinion of yourself? Or do you recognize your complete need for help from God in all areas of your life? You know, I never let my kids win. I just don't. You know, I was watching, I'm a huge March Madness fan. I was watching a game yesterday, and there's this five foot seven guy in Arkansas. And he looks like a child amidst these huge guys out there. He just, it looks ridiculous. That kid, I can promise you, all right, promise you, he was not a kid who was walking around and said, okay, everybody back up so Johnny can make a basket since all of you can block him. That kid probably got packed like 70,000 times over the course of his little life. And he kept trying, he kept going, he kept working, he kept going for it. Teaches you the value of what you accomplish, you know? This is a situation where we look at ourselves and we realize, I can't give myself any passes. There's no pass. There's no, this is not a situation where you converse with yourself internally and go, yeah, but you know, the reason I did that is because of these circumstances or because of their bad attitude first. This is the one that doesn't cut ourselves any slack when we're evaluating our moral ability. So when we come to the conclusion, I need help, God. The deficiency's here. It's not anywhere else. It's the question of whether I'm dependent upon him or I'm self-reliant. Loneliness is when I'm dependent upon him because I recognize without him I can do nothing. It also says with all meekness. Meekness, it refers to a gentle attitude. It's the opposite of having a harsh or a cruel mindset. Uh, it's, it's the opposite of someone who insists on their own way. Now, what's interesting is that this word, when it's used in Scripture, it doesn't normally describe a gentle mindset toward other people. It's a gentle mindset toward God. Kenneth Weiss said this. He said, it's that temper of spirit in which we accept God's dealings with us as good and therefore without disputing. Yeah, I got real quiet in first service when I said that too. That we accept God's dealings with us as good and therefore without disputing. That's what this word is talking about. In its simplest terms, it's a submissive attitude toward the will of God. Oh, this is where, where you got me, God? I'm the prisoner of Jesus today? Okay. All right. How can I be the best prisoner of Jesus today? Do you have a submissive mindset towards God's will for your life? Do you have a gentle temper toward what God allows into your life? Or are you harsh in your heart toward God when things occur in your life that you do not like? 
look at this and you say, how is this the mind of Christ? Jesus never sinned. How could he be lowly? How could he have a small moral opinion of himself, opinion of his moral abilities? Look at Matthew eleven twenty nine. If there's anyone who didn't need to have loneliness, it was Jesus because he had superior moral qualities. He never sinned. Like, I don't even get close to that standard. But in Matthew eleven twenty nine, 29, Jesus says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and you shall find rest unto your souls. What does he mean when he says that? I think we have to understand Jesus, when he came to the earth, he came to live as a man. We had a phrase that a friend of mine would use at Bible college when you get challenged on something. You say, well, Jesus is like this. And sometimes he would say, well, I'm not Jesus. And I think while we joked about that stuff, but there was a, a false idea within that response, which is this idea that somehow because Jesus is still fully God, that the human things he went through were never legitimate, that the temptations he went through weren't legitimate. When Jesus was in the desert being tempted by Satan, Satan comes to him, the very first temptation, he says, if you're the son of God, turn these stones to bread. And the word if there, it should probably be translated since because it's a uh, conditional clause of reality. I'm not asking, a, I'm not setting an if statement that I think will fail. This is a one that's a true thing. So since you're the son of God, why are you starving out here? Why are you going through this? You don't have to do this. You could turn the stones to bread at any moment. So why not do it? And Jesus' reply, my translation, I didn't come here to whoop you as God. I came here to whoop you as man. Man shall not live, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. I am here to do this as a man would need to do this, as a man would need to counter your temptations. And I'm going to beat you where every other man has failed. We sang that song, you're the second Adam come to lead us home, right? That's because the first Adam failed. And we lost our home because of his failure, and we've repeated his failure, Jesus is the one who would succeed, but not as God, as man. He never ceased to be God, but he did it as you and I would need to do it. And so he did it with lowliness. If Jesus can do that when he has no reason to be lowly, well, now I think we have lots of reasons to be lowly. Come unto me, for I am meek and lowly. Meek. He had a gentle attitude. Whatever God said. All right, Lord, this is the will of the Father. Jesus said, I don't do anything unless the Lord tells me to do it. I don't say anything unless God tells me to say it. There's a lot of times I would have wanted to speak up. In fact, you can even see the challenge that Jesus experienced at times when it says he would groan and he'd go, oh, a wicked generation. But he didn't. He submitted himself to the Father. And I can guarantee you, he wasn't grumbling. He didn't, you know, it's not after the disciples went to bed and he said, now you and me need to talk, Dad. He accepted God's dealings with him as good and he did not dispute. Now, while Paul certainly has in mind our attitude toward God here, 
Jesus says some very interesting words when he makes this statement about himself in Matthew 11. He spoke of having these two attitudes in regards to his interactions with us. He said, come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart. I'll give you rest for your souls. This attitude, this mindset towards God of lowliness and meekness, it's the only way to find rest. If you're not experiencing rest in your soul, it's because you're not meek and lowly. If you have anguish of soul, if you have irritation of soul, frustrated soul, it's because you're not meek and lowly. Somehow you think that God's not been good to you. Somehow you, you measure everything in chapters one through three and your circumstances you're going through and you go, not enough, God. You should be doing me better. The only place to find rest is being meek and lowly, coming and learning of Jesus. Now, when Paul says, come unto me, again, he's not just speaking of his relationship with God. He, I'm not Paul. When Jesus said that, he's not just speaking of his relationship with God. He's, when he tells us to learn from him in these two areas, it, it shows us that this mindset of humility and gentleness, while it starts with how I view God, a saintly life is also characterized by humility, loneliness, and gentleness toward others. Andrew Murray said this, there is no clearer proof that God's spiritual blessings in Christ Jesus have reached and mastered a man than lowliness and meekness in his relationships with his fellow men. I'm gonna read that again. There is no clearer proof that God's spiritual blessings in Christ Jesus have reached and mastered a man than lowliness and meekness. That's the proof, lowliness and meekness in his relationships with his fellow men. And so before we move on to the second way we're to think like Jesus, I ask you another question. Do you see yourself as better than others? Or do you recognize that I need them in my life? Are you gentle in your heart toward others, believing the best about them? Or are you cruel and harsh in your attitude towards others, believing the worst, or thinking, I don't need you? Listen, <laughs> there's always going to be people in your life, particularly in the church, that you're going to just go, I do not need you. Like, like the last thing I need right now is you. But that is not the mind of Christ. And sometimes the person that you're going to be thinking, the last person I need right now is you, is going to be a spouse or a child or a parent or a coworker or a boss or an employee or a brother or sister in Christ. And in every one of these circumstances that we go through in Ephesians 4, 5, and 6, the Lord's going to say, here's how you treat that spouse or that kid or that parent or that coworker or that boss or that employee or that brother or sister in Christ. And if your mindset is, I don't need you, you're going to dismiss all the rest of the stuff that's said. And you're going to disobey the Lord. We cannot see ourselves better than others if we're going to do the stuff we're going to read about here. We need to recognize that we need them in our lives. We need to have lowliness and meekness in our attitude towards them in addition to our attitude towards God. Now, the second way we think like Jesus, it says next, is with long-suffering. 
Long-suffering here is not general patience. Here it means a state of emotional calm in the face of provocation or misfortune. It means that we remain calm without complaint or irritation. Now, (laughs) the source of this provocation or misfortune, when we talk about this word, is not circumstances. That's a different word for patience. The source of our provocation or misfortune, for this, in this word's case, is it's other people. It's when other people provoke us or other people are the cause of misfortune in our lives. Vincent, in his New Testament word study, said, it is the long, protracted restraint of the soul from yielding to passion, especially the passion of anger. It's the long, protracted restraint of the soul from yielding to passion, especially the passion of anger. We read in James chapter 5 in our scripture reading, you can turn back there if you'd like. I'm going to reference a couple things. And I read that, and you kind of read the start, and he's telling rich people to howl. Like, I mean, now you got to realize James is, he's a no-nonsense guy. Like, James is one of those guys you don't go to if you need a hug, all right? Like, if you need a hug, James is not the guy you visit, because he'll hug you, but he's going to hit you first, right? Like, James is a person you go to when you need to get right. Like, you got, if, do you have somebody like that in your life? If you don't, you need to. That's the person that you go out and you have coffee with, and you just rage against the machine, and then they look you square in the eye and go, you know this is your fault, right? Everybody needs somebody like that in their lives. There's no babying. There's no, right, let's say, take the shot. No, no. You're going up and you're launching your threes and they're stuffing you every time. Sit down. You're going to listen to me now. You're wrong. That's who James is. (laughs) And James is how you rich. What do you got against rich people, man? But then he explains. He's like, those of you, he's describing who he's referring to. Those of you who make people mow your fields and then you don't pay them what you said you're going to pay them. You live this fat, happy life and off of other people's suffering. And then he says in James 5, 6, he adds to this, you have condemned and killed the righteous. So I mean, he's clearly not just a, a rich brother in the Lord. This is someone who's acting wickedly, Right? Someone who's wealthy and they've acquired that wealth through wicked behavior. And they have condemned and killed the righteous. But then look at what it says next. And he did not resist you. What? You went after people that you shouldn't have gone after. You used your position and your wealth to go after somebody that couldn't really defend themselves. And you know what? They didn't. They let you do it. You would think that verse 7 would be like, yeah, yeah, go get him, God. And he does say God's going to get him. But then he turns to us. Therefore, what do you mean therefore? Everything he just said. Therefore, because they're wicked and they, they treat the righteous poorly, they condemn them and even kill them, and the righteous don't resist them. Therefore, you, brethren, be patient unto the coming of the Lord. Follow their example of those who didn't resist. 
Behold, the husbandman, the farmer, he waits for the precious fruit of the earth, and he has long patience for it, that's our word here, long-suffering, for it until he receives the early and the latter rain. Be also patient. Establish your hearts, because the coming of the Lord is close. It draws near. You got bigger fish to fry, man. We get saved, and it's so exciting, right? That's the early rain. Like, we get saved, like, wow, all my sins are forgiven. I'm a child of God. Everything in Ephesians 1 through 3. And you know what the Lord says? All right. Now, you wait for the latter rain, too. You wait for the latter rain. You endure through hardship. You hold to everything of who you are through all the nonsense, through all the injustice. And you hold your ground until the latter rain comes and he takes us home. And so, verse 9 do not grudge, he says, against one another. It means to grumble, brethren. Now he, now he turns it on us. He's like, not only just endure like hard treatment from unbelievers, unfair treatment from unbelievers, but also don't grumble against each other. Like this is the part where you read James, and you're like, James, why are you getting after me? I haven't done anything wrong. He's got more to say. Do not gr- grumble against each other, brethren, lest you be condemned. Behold, the judge stands at the door. And then he says, take, my brethren, the prophets who have spoken in the name of the Lord for an example of suffering, affliction, and of patience. That's our word here in Ephesians. In the face of provocation and misfortune caused by other people, follow their example. Like I said, There'll be ice packs out in the lobby after service. This is the long-suffering that Paul speaks of. This is the mindset of the saintly life, especially, especially towards our brothers and sisters in Christ. Now, Paul could say what he's saying here about long-suffering and about how this is how we're supposed to treat each other because he had experienced it from Jesus himself. Look at 1 Timothy chapter 1 with me. 1 Timothy chapter 1. We're going to read verses 12 through 16. Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 1 verse 12, And I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has enabled me, for that he counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry, who was before, before what? Before he was saved a blasphemer, and a persecutor, an insolent. I shook my fist at God, shook my fist at Jesus, persecuted his people, blasphemed, slandered his name. But he says, I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was exceeding abundant with faith and love, which is in Christ Jesus. I experienced this because of God's grace, his love for me, his faithfulness to me, despite my unfaithfulness to him. And so he concludes, this is a faithful saying. You can say this to anybody. It's always gonna be true. It's worthy of all acceptance. That Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. That's why we're all standing here, right? If you're saved today, it's because he came into the world to save sinners. And then Paul says, of whom I am chief. How be it, verse 16 for this cause I obtained mercy. This is why God did this for me. That in me first, 
Jesus Christ might show forth all what? That's our word. Same word. All long-suffering for a pattern to them which should hereafter believe on him to life everlasting. Paul experienced this long-suffering I'm talking to you about. The state of emotional calm in the face of provocation or misfortune. Paul had provoked the Lord. He had brought misfortune to the church. And Jesus stayed calm. And he met him on the road to Damascus. And he reached out to him in love. And when Paul finishes sharing his own experience of long-suffering, the mindset Jesus had, he says, now unto the king eternal, immortal, invisible, the only wise God, be honor and glory forever and ever. He knows what he's talking about. He praises Jesus for being the only wise God, the only one who gets it right. I realize that there are many ideas that are out there about how to handle provocation or misfortune from a person. I realize there's many ideas you might even hear in a church setting about those topics. And some of those teachings or ideas might even seem logical, but I would say to you this morning that Jesus is the only wise God and that we ought listen to what he has to say. And as those who have been elevated to adopted sons of God, we are called to live up to God's only begotten son's mindset. We're called to follow our big brother, who's not ashamed to call his brethren, the Bible says. Think about that. How many times have you been in a conversation? Maybe you've said the words, maybe someone else has said the words, where you're annoyed with someone else at church or someone else in the faith, and you say, I don't even think they're saved. I'm glad Jesus isn't ashamed to call me his brother. I'm glad he's patient with me. Even though I've probably been the source of provocation or misfortune in the lives of those he saved. Now, I realize that we are citizens in a country where we have rights as citizens. And some would say, you know, well, didn't Paul exercise his rights as a Roman citizen? Yes, he did. But Paul's not talking about how you relate to a court system handling a situation. Paul's talking about how we interact with one another. And Paul's probably sounds really exciting and fun to stand up in church and to say, I'm proud to be an American and where at least I know I'm free. And I'm thankful for those who died to give me that freedom. But I don't have that freedom as a Christian. My Christianity is not identified by that freedom. And so in my interactions with others, I'm not to walk around acting like I have rights because I do not. Well, the apostle, you said your old man is dead. You're a new creation now. That old life is gone. You don't live that way anymore. You don't live for self anymore. You ever seen a dead body complain about how people are talking about it or treating it? No, because it's dead. It has no rights anymore. We are similar. We've been called to liberty, freedom to love one another. That's what we've been called to. That's the freedom we have in Christ. That's what the Bible says. 
And so instead of giving in to the passions within us when someone provokes us or they're the, they're the cause of difficult circumstances for us, we're to do something other than lose our temper. It says that we are to forbear one another in love, and then second, to endeavor to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Forbearing is our normal word for patience. It's where you just put up with something, where you're just patient with someone. The yielded believer who is living the saintly life, according to Vincent, he said this, he will be, he will be patient, she will be patient with others when misunderstandings arise, when cutting words are said, and when unkind actions are done. We forbear in love. The love shown at Calvary was a forgiving love. Ours should be the same. And how does this patient love focus itself? Well, it endeavors to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. The word endeavoring here, it, it means to do something with intense effort and motivation. It's often translated in Greek literature or the New Testament as to work hard or to do your best. It speaks of an eagerness to do something. In this case, it's to be eager to preserve our unity. To keep means to cause something to continue. We need to be eager to cause the unity of the Spirit to continue. We spent a large chunk of time in chapter 2 discussing the blessing that Jesus is our peace, right? That Jesus has miraculously created this new entity called the church where all of us stand on equal ground before the Father and before one another. Another blessing we learned about in chapter 1 is that everyone who believes, whether they're Jewish or Gentile, that they are sealed with the Holy Spirit. We are given the Holy Spirit inside of us, right? What he's saying is we need to endeavor, be eager to keep that which we have, that which Jesus gave to us. Listen, there's a lot of weird ideas about unity in the church out there today. There's a humanistic idea of unity where we all need to just accept each other and all do the same thing and all be the same. That is not biblical unity. We don't need to all meet in the same building or do everything together or have the same church name to become unified. We are already unified because every born-again Christian has the Holy Spirit living inside of them. And that's regardless of what the name of their church is or the place that they meet. So we don't need to create unity or be unified. We already are. What we need to do is to be eager to preserve the unity we already have and we do that by recognizing the thing that binds us together is Jesus. It's in the bond of peace. Jesus, we already learned, is our peace. Paul puts it another way in Colossians 3, 12 through 15. He says, therefore, put on as the elect of God, holy and beloved, Put on bowels of mercies, a heart of mercy. Put on kindness. Put on humbleness of mind, meekness, long-suffering, forbearing one another and forgiving one another. If any man have a quarrel against any, even as Christ forgave you, so also do you. And above all these things, put on love, which is the bond of per perfectness, maturity. You say you're a mature believer, then put on love. And let the peace of God rule in your hearts to the which also you are called in one body. This is the motivation for our eagerness. 
It's not because the other person has been so awesome to us, but because Jesus has been so awesome to us. Amen? That's why we're eager to preserve the unity. It's why we're eager to say, well, I'm not going to lose it on this person. Like they're provoking me right now. Like they're the cause of some difficult circumstances or misfortune in my life right now. But I'm going to keep my temper, and instead I'm going to eagerly pursue to keep the unity. I'm going to put up with them, be patient with them in love because of how awesome Jesus has been to me. Everything we learned in chapters one through three. And so, the final question this morning is, do you easily yield to those passions inside when someone provokes you? Or they're the source of your difficult condition or circumstances? If you do easily yield to passion, then you need to confess this morning that you've had a wrong mindset. And then you need to tell the Lord that you're willing to follow Jesus and to restrain those passions for a long time without complaint and without irritation. That you're willing to be patient with your brothers and sisters in Christ and to preserve the unity you have with them because of what He did for you. Jesus, He already said it a different way. He goes, if you just love people who are nice to you, who love you, then how different are you than anybody else? Be therefore perfect like your Father in heaven. Love your enemies, right? Do good to them and despitefully use you. Pray for them and persecute you. Keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. I'm going to leave you this morning with a quote from Andrew Murray as the worship team comes up. He says, it is in the meekness and lowliness of Christ in daily relationship with our fellow Christians, even when they are a trial or a disappointment to us, that we are to show our willingness to sacrifice in order to maintain the unity of the Spirit and to maintain the bond of love. It may not be easy, but Christ came from heaven to bring humility back to this earth and to work it out in our hearts. That's why he called us out of the grave. This is the life he's called us to. Now walk worthy of it. Walk worthy of it. Now, some of you might be thinking, I need to go read those three chapters today. Because you're thinking, well, this is hard. I mean, you're asking me to do something that, that I, I can't do or I won't do. You know, I, I know when you, I teach a sermon like this, that, a message like this, that it's very easy for people to harden their hearts. And the reason we harden our hearts is because we either fail to remember or we choose to not remember what God has done for us in Christ. And so whether you came prepped this morning to hear a heavy teaching, whether you prepped and reminded yourself of the things that God's done for us as we hear about what it means to live a life that weighs up to what God's done for us, that's fitting or proper with what God's done for us, I don't want to go through the rest of this book and, and have you just heart get harder and harder and harder and harder and harder. And so what I'm going to do is this, is I'm going to ask all of our leaders to come on up and a, a couple of the wives to come up too, their wives to come on up too. And 
we're going to sing. I'm going to pray, and then we're going to sing. But if, if you're here this morning, and you realize, I do not have the mind of Christ. Listen, I get it, okay? I am the exact opposite of this. I am easily irritable. I do not naturally think low of myself. I am carving a path in my life and get out of my way. Get in line or get out of my way is my natural disposition. I'm trying to do something. So you can either get along and help my way, not your way, my way, or leave. But what I found is, is when I come to the Lord, I say to him, Lord, I've got this problem with somebody. He says to me, Will, this is not how I think. This is not how I work. It's not how I treat others. And what he has done over the course of my life, he's, he's taken a man who had a mind that was nothing like Jesus's, and he's made me more like him. As you this morning, if you don't have the mind of Christ, you look at yourself and you really challenge this morning, and you say, Lord, I want to become all the things that Paul's going to talk about here, but I know it starts here. And you want to make that just fresh commitment to the Lord. You want to just come up for prayer, Lord. I want my mindset to be different. These folks are here to pray with you as we sing. Don't leave today with a hard heart that here's the things that were said to you from the word of God. The right way to do things, the right way to think, Jesus' way of thinking. Don't leave here today because then you're going to go to the next three chapters and your heart's going to get harder and harder and harder. So Lord, we give you this time right now and we want to have the mind of Christ. Lord, we desperately need you to do that work in us. But Lord, you call us to yield it to you, to come to you, to repent, Lord, to say that the way I've been going is wrong. And this is the way I want to start going. Jesus, as we come to that place where we reckon ourselves to be dead to sin and alive to you, as we begin to take the grave clothes off, it starts by unwrapping our head. Lord, remind us of your love. Remind us of your goodness this morning so that we all leave here today desiring to have our minds renewed by your word so that the rest of the things we learn in Ephesians will impact us. In Jesus' name we pray.